What we've got here is failure to communicate. Freedom. Freedom? Well, sign away my freedom. Why, this is ridiculous. Don't be corny, brother. <laughs> sure, our system of free enterprise isn't perfect. But before we throw it away for some imported double talk, let's turn the clock back a few years to see what it's done for us. With your host, Mike Paul. Hey guys, welcome back to Paul's to the Wall. I am your host, Mike Paul, joined, of course, by my brother, Nick Paul. And once again, everyone's favorite economist, Gene Epstein. <laughs> Gene, how are you doing today? Uh, doing uh, about as well as can be expected, given the difficulties of these times. And thanks for calling me everyone's favorite economist. Uh, that's a nice <laughs> nice way of putting it. Sure. Um, so, yeah, speaking of these times, yeah. uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on was to discuss a, a lot of what's changed um, the last couple months. Particularly, um, you know, Biden's talking about this dark winter and how the worst is ahead of us. Um, on the contrary, I've seen guys like you and Tom Woods um, railing very hard against the lockdowns, which I'm in agreement with. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it seems to be a very controversial subject mm -hmm. everywhere I go. You were uh, kind enough to refer Dr. Knut Witkowski towards us, yeah. and we did a great interview with him. Yeah. If no one's listened to that one, I, I highly recommend going back and listening to that. That was very educational. But um, what are your thoughts on the lockdowns? What do you see happening going forward? Do you think the Biden administration may kind of claim a quick victory by putting a little mask mandate in? Or do you think they're here to stay? I think uh, with some trepidation, I will forecast with some trepidation that the, uh, the lockdowns will fade and that... Uh, uh, they are not here to stay. So let me put that, you know, in the nut graph of my statement. Uh, I base that on um, a set of, a, of a fairly obvious assumptions about motivation. Uh, clearly, the media and uh, and the Democratic governors and mayors had a stake in bringing down Donald Trump, and so. Uh, they were supportive completely of wrecking the economy, and uh, they succeeded. Uh, certainly, uh, had uh, the lockdowns not occurred, then the economy would have continued to grow. Probably Trump would have won the election. Uh, he certainly uh, lost by a relatively small margin in those swing states. And so they did achieve that objective. And so uh, now that objective is behind them. And the the local governors and mayors in particular, uh, the federal government's another issue potentially, but uh, even the federal government, uh, when you're head of the federal government, you care about revenue. Certainly the states and localities can't print money the way the federal government can. And so there is a uh, an incentive to open up the economy for that reason as well. And... Um, for both those reasons, then, I think that it sort of figures that Biden and his advisors would say, we're going to have this dramatic hundred days of, I know, maybe you're up on the latest news of what, what he's declared, but I'm just latching on his the statement, we're going to have a hundred days of wearing masks. And uh, that's a very nice dramatic thing to say, the first hundred days. And how he's going to enforce that mask wearing, who knows? It's just really uh, rhetoric. Uh, but I believe that he's going to have a real tilt in favor of opening up the economy for the reasons 
that I stated. Uh, and uh, but but then uh, the risks to my forecast, so to speak, the risks. When you say risks, which means that uh, how could I be wrong? <laughs> That's a euphemism for how I could be wrong. That's um, that those who are in the business of earning money as forecasters put it in that euphemistic way. Uh, how could I turn out to be wrong? Well, um, in particular, um, and now I cite Knut Rutkowski because he is my, unfortunately, almost my sole source on this. And I guess he explained this to you guys when he was on the show, which is that uh, we are now in a very scary cycle. Uh, the cycle is that w to the extent that lockdowns and mitigations succeed and slow herd immunity, uh, you create, you incubate what he calls escape mutations. We are, we are, we, we are creating uh, the circumstances in which uh, mutations can occur, variants can occur, that for, for which we have less uh, um, fewer antibodies, and therefore the, the the plague, so to speak, of the epidemic of the of the virus continues. We're no longer looking at COVID nineteen. We're looking at a COVID twenty or COVID twenty one. And while I gather from him now, less important to say this, but of course of some importance, these variants are, are almost definitely less deadly, but maybe more contagious. So it could continue to cause problems and therefore i don't know what uh what the administrations in charge will do or what the democratic governors will urge or what the senators will urge on the biden administration or what his advisors will do because they will not they don't realize that they are creating the problem very similar uh, perhaps i've mentioned this before on the show very similar to the way in which a government creates zombie firms perpetuates a, a downturn by intervening and not allowing bankruptcies to happen, sort of similar, uh, the analogous to that. So if we have continual mutations and people I speak to, the, the like me, are completely ignorant of why it's happening, which seems to be happening almost every month from different sources and it comes to these shores, then those mutations could, could mean that the lockdowns Will persist. However, at the end of the day, I believe that the only the only way to cope, since the only way to cope with those mutations, is through herd immunity. And I should have mentioned that other part, which is that it means that to the extent that the vaccines could succeed anyway in helping with COVID nineteen, they may be limited in helping with these mutations, and so that will be tragic as well. And uh, therefore. Uh, the mutations are going to spread. And uh, and then what will government do? Well, I believe that they'll find some illogical way, because they are never logical, to declare victory some way or another and allow herd immunity to take place. And so if you want to put a timer on it, I believe that by the spring uh Starting in April twenty, what March twenty first, when uh, or thereabouts, uh, the lockdowns are going to be lifted, and that after the uh, toward the end of these hundred days that uh, that Biden has declared, I guess what that takes you from to March takes you into April. Biden is going to start pushing uh, an opening and declare a victory that we did the right thing. Uh, the Trump administration screwed up. We protected us, and uh, and from this awful stuff, and we can move toward opening up the economy. So that's my best forecast. Yeah. Sure, and uh, yeah. yeah. So you're in New York State, 
we're in Illinois, so yeah. we're both in uh, you know pretty blue states with uh, pretty draconian measures yeah. that have been put in place. Um, the one thing that concerned me the most was just this week that uh, I saw one of uh, the highways near my house has a fixed steel sign. It's not a temporary one. It's a green road sign that's going to, they, you know, could just be government waste where they just, you know, were inefficiently spending, but they have a COVID-19 testing pointing towards the get off. And it's a, a fixed sign, which is like, <laughs> okay, it's a permanent sign, but maybe it's just government's really bad at spending money and they waste money all the time. COVID-19. But, um, <laughs> but, is it, the lettering of the COVID-19, is that in, uh, is that in fixed metal as well? <laughs> they, have to, they have to update their number, you know, got to make it COVID-20. It's too bad in the age of computers that could make it more uh, flexible. That's a funny story. You should take a photo of that, I guess, and post it. On, uh, yeah. 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 I just caught my eye the other day, yeah. but I was like, you know, either, either they're trying to signal that this is not a temporary situation or they just love wasting money. This is Illinois. You know, we're never responsible. Again, I guess, uh, I, I guess a, a partial response to my point about about the fiscal risks that the states and localities face is that maybe the the federal government could keep printing money and and writing checks to the states and the and and the and the cities and sustain them that way. But uh, again, there though there is a fair amount of fiscal pain already uh, on the state and local level, and that can't continue forever. So I I believe that uh, that uh, that. That, that the finances alone will give them a powerful incentive to let uh, let the economy happen again. And of course, New York City depends. My, I'm in New York State and more narrowly in New York City and even more narrowly still, I'm a Manhattanite. And so, so much of the of the city's economy depends on tourism. And of course, that's at risk. So much of the city's economy depends on all kinds of services and amusements. And uh, if those don't open up, uh, New York City uh, tax base is dead and dying and moribund. And so I believe that uh, there will be a new mayor uh, in New York City in particular, uh, Mayor de Blasio is term limited. And I believe that the new mayor will be t will, will lean heavily in favor of opening the economy up again. Uh, no, so yeah. Gene, one thing I wanted to ask you on that topic, actually, yeah. of the states, uh, you know, not wanting their tax revenue till to be too badly hurt by the lockdowns, no. uh, and at the federal level as well. Now, yeah. I mean, I think this year for fiscal year twenty twenty, it was something like they they borrowed, I think, either the same amount of money that they took in in revenue or more. I think they actually finished up with more. Were they being the federal government? Or what, who, I'm sorry, who do you mean? At the, at the federal level, yeah. Federal. Wasn't it? It's like they took in 3.2 and borrowed 3.8 oh. or whatever. And yeah. Um, yeah. So when it comes to the, the incentives of the state, and of course mm -hmm. the politicians probably like all of the control for various reasons, but then they yeah. look at you know their their budget and how badly this is going to hurt them. Yeah. You would think that they would weigh this at some point <clears throat> And say, okay, we have to let up and, and get our tax base back. But at the same time, we see all of these bailouts that are coming for, you know, from the federal government, federal reserve to bail out all these states. And it's, it's almost like that muscle for tax revenue is kind of atrophied. It's like, we don't need to get tax revenue because we can just print and borrow and we never have to deal with the consequences. Yeah. So how do you think, I mean, I, I guess it would be different state by state, but is this madness of just pretending that you can just print endlessly? I mean, do you think that's going to come to a head sooner or later? 
Good question. Uh, and of course, I did mention, I stipulated, the, even anticipated your point, Nick, when I said that indeed, somebody could say what you've just said, which is that uh, that, that the entire, well, the states and localities and the federal government are basically uh, being financed by a printing press. And therefore, they don't have to worry about taxes anymore. Uh, I, 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 I agree. That's a risk to my forecast, so to speak. That's why I could end up being wrong. And uh, right now, of course, I am pretty chastened. I was I was much more confident in April when I wrote an article called uh, "The Anatomy of the Great Suppression." When I said that the uh, that that one reason why I was optimistic that they would lift the suppression, and I called it the Great Suppression in particular because I keyed off Murray Rothbard, uh, the great Austrian economist on business cycles, and pointed out that this was not a conventional downturn. It was it was a downturn caused by the king going crazy. The king went crazy. The governors and mayors, and to some degree, Donald Trump agreed uh, that we've got to wreck the economy. And then I said that I'm optimistic uh, that we'll pull out. Uh, by the way, I mostly have been right. I did say it was not going to be a V-shaped recovery. I said that a V-shaped meaning that uh, that you, you sink uh, to form a V, and that of course happened. It was an immediate collapse of the economy, but then, uh, but then you form a V by rising just as quickly and in the same arc. Uh, it's been we've been rising slowly. Uh, even the last employment number wasn't so bad. The last employment number uh, released uh, on what on Friday uh, about the December numbers showed that uh, that uh, the only sector of the economy that shed jobs. Was uh, was was what's called a uh, hospitality and amusement was restaurants, bars, um, uh, uh, amusement parks. That's what that's what the lockdowns imposed. But then, if you look at all the rest of the private sector economy, there was like a, a nearly a four hundred thousand addition of jobs. So the economy is actually muddling through. But of course, I've just ducked your question, Nick. So let me return to it. Uh, my my point is though that. It's just difficult for me to believe uh, that, in a way, yours is a two-part question. The first part of the question is, uh, will will the states, will, will the mayors and governors just sort of rest easy and rely on the government's printing press for the time being and not worry about all the unemployment and all the wrecked businesses and, uh, and, and the lack of revenue from their tax base? It's difficult for me to believe that they are that crazy. They're, there's already some pain. There's, there is already, already some cutbacks. They don't like to face their local uh, public sector labor unions and tell them that we do need layoffs. They do face that a bit. There's no point in being in in that state of anxiety. And then on the other side, you mentioned, well, the power trip of being uh, being able to declare we're shutting this down, we're shutting that down, and and everybody's got to listen to you. The that uh, that's of course a real high for some of these people, certainly for mayor uh, for for. Uh, Mayor, for Mayor de Blasio, as well as, in particular, for Governor Cuomo of New York and Gavin Newsom of California. I think they're having a gay old time of it. You're right about that. But uh, again, I I guess I'm equivocating left and right. I'm doing it on the one one hand. On the other hand, uh, but I think that, again, there's too much of a fear uh, on that part that's probably residually there that tells them that they've got to get the economy back on track, and uh, and that uh, that even even they as human beings are being uh, are uh, must be chastened by all the unemployment, and then apart from that, 
I'll bring in my other point again, which is that the whole point of this, that uh, that, that uh, you got to bring down Trump, the king, the dictator has been brought down, he's been slain in the Capitol, uh, he's, he's gone, he's, uh, uh, the, the victory over him this past week, everybody's turned on him, the Wall Street Journal wants him out. So, uh, so that must give you a heady feeling. There's no longer, uh, the, the Trump derangement syndrome is no longer something you need to suffer from. So therefore, again, that's my Gabby, my long-winded way of saying that I do think that the mayors will, will and, and governors will uh, want to pressure the federal government to the extent that they can, that they own democratic, the democratic mayors and will in particular, will want to pressure the federal government to, list, to lift the lockdowns. And of course, they themselves have a great deal of initiative that they can bring to it because the lockdowns were brought about by them. As you perhaps know, I mean, Trump never interfered in what's called federalism, uh, misleadingly called federalism, which means that the states pretty much can do what they want. He never interfered in any of that uh, in any crucial way. But then when you talk about the next part of your question, which is uh, on the federal level, uh, when will the infatuation with, uh, with money printing end? Um, again, I think that it's going to slow, uh, but I, I believe that uh, they can print money for quite a while. Uh, by that, I mean that I don't know that uh, that the chickens will really come home to roost, or that the that 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 the instability will come for another ten years. They could continue to print, although it's going to be at a slower rate. They they will tilt in the direction, as I mentioned, of bringing the economy back. So the deficits won't be quite as much. They won't have to have to print quite as much. But certainly, there has been a kind of a, a you're correct, Nick, to imply if that is your implication that there has been a, a kind of a change of philosophy. Those the MMT is the money money market theorists. You're probably aware of them, as I jokingly call them. They're the mo that that's money market money market tyranny is what they're really proposing, which is the government be less and less answerable to the people. Doesn't have to doesn't have to raise money through taxes. Doesn't have to raise money through borrowing. It can just print. There's been a tilt in that direction, and I think that it's permanent. But it won't be as that they won't be printing quite as much money next year, or not quite as much money as the year before, and. Uh, the federal government in this world does lead a charmed life. I I have to point out to you that you know, that when I talk about the debt with naysayers, some of them even libertarians, the one card they play when I talk about it and the dangers of the debt and the fact that this is going to lead ultimately to uh, to a to a real fiscal crisis, they tell me, well, then. Uh, don't you respect markets? They tell me. Look at look at the way the stock market has been behaving. But in particular, look at the bond market. Look at the twenty and thirty year interest rate on the bond. If, if they were so alarmed about inflation and instability, why would those interest rates be like two percent? And that so they play that card. And and of course, my only response is that you know don't don't get too obsessed with uh, with uh, was it efficient market theory the markets could be wrong the the idea i certainly wouldn't buy a 20 year bond or or 25 year 30 year bond with only a 2% interest rate although the world is doing it so that's the card that they play against me, and uh, and they have half a point. Uh, half a point when they make that argument. And um, my counter argument is, if you look at the history of the of the of the cost of servicing the debt by the federal government, it's averaged six percent 
up since World War II. And if it goes up to like four, four and a half percent, it's going to absolutely devastate the budget, the cost merely of servicing the debt. And uh, But it could be years away. Um, the, the dollar has held. Um, the dollar in, in relation to other foreign currencies has held. And so the U.S. economy is leading a charmed life. But but to pull it all together, again, I, I insist on my forecast, pretty much the forecast I made in April, that the economy is slowly climbing out of the recession. The lockdowns are gradually going to lift. The, 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 expand, the recovery from... Uh, the, uh, from the collapse uh, in uh, in the spring is going to continue and we'll probably get to an expansion phase. But we do face risks a year or two down the line. There is a housing bubble, or maybe I'm anticipating some of your questions. But I, I do still believe that there is an argument for making for, for an optimistic tilt. But uh, of course, I may have almost talked my way out of this argument because I've given you all of the modifications and potential dangers of my scenario. So I'm sure I have not been too helpful. But uh, but uh, stick around. We'll talk some more about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of to your point about you know the, this coming year and everything with uh, yeah. all the spending. This latest stimulus bill, you know, where yeah. everyone got six hundred dollars, and there was this big fight about two thousand dollars for six hundred. Yeah. Um, you know, these. It seems like the left always has some arbitrary magic dollar amount that makes the world better. You know, fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage, yeah. uh, two thousand yeah. dollars stimulus. Um, the I saw even. Ihan Omar tweeted out uh, like $2,000 a month uh, till the end of the lockdowns or to the end of COVID. And Dave Smith retweeted it saying $2,001 a month, you heartless sociopath. Just, <laughs> there's, there's no, yeah. it's just arbitrary. So why not 5,000? Why not 10,000 a month? Why, why not? Why not? You know, why not live it up? What's this $15 an hour? Business? Why not a hundred dollars an hour? Exactly. So, <laughs> so <laughs> my question is, do, do you think that, there will be some sort of UBI that comes out of this at the end, oh, and God. if so, what what kind of turmoil could result from that in a, in a short time frame? Oh wow! Okay, if <laughs> so, okay, it's a deep I, one. I don't. I guess. I, I guess. Uh, I, I guess I'll. I uh, again. It, you know, this. I'm, I guess I'm being drag kicking and screaming into this new world, and so maybe my opinion isn't worth anything. The UBI is the, the UBI is such a ridiculous argument. I mean, if the if the jobs are disappearing, I want to say to the UBI people. Usually, you say, "Well, jobs are disappearing." And um, and and therefore, uh, you know, we need a UBI because a lot of people just will be unnecessary in the new economy. And so I, of course, respond by saying, uh, well, as of February of last year, uh, we, uh, we we had a record number of people working in the economy, a record number. So so uh, until recently, before the downturn occurred, uh, we uh, uh, that forecast was still being contradicted by history. More and more people work, not fewer. So therefore, uh, uh, history is still uh, giving a lie to your forecast. But then let's be reasonable and say, let's wait. Let's wait for you to be right. Let's wait to see. Let's allow an expansion to happen and see if jobs disappear. If jobs disappear and we have a 10 and 20% unemployment rate resulting, then let's talk about a UBI. But let's, a universal basic income, I should clarify for your, which means that, which specifically means that for the first time in our crazy welfare history, uh, you would, a, a, a kid of 18 or a kid of 21, depending upon the age that they determine it to be, is being told, uh, we're going to give you money whether or not you get a job. Don't have to get a job. This is going to, you don't have to show even any interest in getting a job. We're going to write you a check. Uh, 
for uh, what a thousand bucks plus two hundred to cover medical care, and that actually would be enough to get by on if you move to the Midwest and live in a rooming house. You can get by on never working, or, or maybe picking up a job or two on the side to supplement your income. You know, selling drugs, doing whatever. So. Uh, uh, of course, all I'm really doing, uh, Mike, is responding by trying to be rational about mm -hmm. the stupidity about the UBI. Again, let's wait to see if jobs disappear uh, before we do the UBI. And of course, tragically, of course, to some degree, it might be a self-fulfilling prophecy with the $15 minimum wage, because that, of course, is going to make it more and more difficult for unskilled people to get work. On the other hand, with respect to the minimum wage, uh, of $15 an hour that's becoming pretty much nationally uh, imposed everywhere. Uh, it's it's very easy to evade the many businesses that do evade it. It, it, is, it, it is apparently, this is something research my son uncovered, that, that, that there's so few people that that the government ever employs to enforce the minimum wage that that for for ma for most small businesses it's it's easy to evade, and so uh, so they'll probably it won't be that effective the the de the de facto minimum wage probably won't be fifteen dollars even though the de jure by law will be fifteen so uh, so that's why we, I guess my way of answering that hopefully the insanity of the of the uh, of the uh, UBI won't. Uh, become. Oops, I'm. I'm gonna you know, get the light back on here. Although we're only recording, but uh, the insanity of the UBI probably won't become. Uh, uh, won't morph out of this temporary, you know, two thousand a month or whatever. Because at least uh, logically, it's tied to hardship that uh, you know people can't work, they don't have jobs. So you and uh, so that's why uh, you do it. Whereas the UBI is supposed to be tied to a long-term problem of no jobs. Uh, in the new economy. And uh, so that's at least large, a logical jump that I hope even the insane progressives aren't capable of. But as you see, I've expressed a hope rather than expressed a forecast. I, I will say, of course, from my perspective, that I will be surprised if the UBI uh, gets uh, uh, gets uh, becomes uh, the norm. I don't think that the Biden administration, you know, he's not a progressive. He's he's like, you know, of course, he's lost many points of IQ. In particular, that's Joe Biden. But but still, I don't think that that's his orientation. I don't think that that's his style uh, to think in those terms that you should write checks to kids and tell them they don't have to work for the rest of their lives. So I guess that's my other hope. And and I guess to latch upon one final hope, which it's that. That um, while uh, it, it did certainly get me a bit upset, ironically a bit upset that I was rooting for the Republicans in Georgia, uh, that is, as you know, uh, last Tuesday, uh, the Republicans lost control of the Senate because it's going to, because they lost those two Senate seats in Georgia. It's going to be a 50-50 vote between Republicans and Democrats in the in the Senate, and and Kamala Harris, the Vice President, will be able to cast the the deciding vote. So that does give uh, the uh, the Democrats a certain amount of power, but it's a very even split, and there are conservative Democrats. Uh, and uh, as well, and and so the, so it's it's a bit of a mix and difficult. Uh, then it won't be easy for any kind of extreme progressive legislation to be pushed through the Senate, despite the fact that they'll have a majority, because you've got to persuade some of those more conservative Democrats to go along with it. And I assume, and presumably, and of course, a, a UBI 
to exhaust the question uh, in terms of my answer, the UBI definitely cannot be presidential decree. It does have to be a, uh, a some kind of bill passed by the House and Senate. So I think it's if, for that reason, uh, it would probably be difficult to, to push through. Okay, that's encouraging to hear. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> sticking back to that stimulus bill, though, um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure yeah. you, you got a kick out of some of uh, all the uh, unrelated spending that yeah. kind of railroaded through mm -hmm. um like the, the what was it like uh 10 million dollars to gender studies in pakistan 7 million to uh smart toilets to study a anal print i think is what Rand paul tweeted out oh yeah no i, I didn't i didn't know i mean that's the usual funny stuff i i didn't follow it as closely as you yeah i guess yeah. a few bucks you know it's uh, peanuts compared to, to what to what the federal government spends every couple of days but go ahead yes <laughs> yeah but my uh my Kind of most interesting uh, take out of that because that's when they they uh, you know said six hundred dollars a person. There was that that fight started um, is how like Pelosi and McConnell's houses got vandalized because of so. And um, what was kind of interesting to me is they weren't vandalizing, saying open the economy, uh, let us go back to work. It was give me my money. Where's my two thousand? And I feel like after one round of free money, a large percentage of uh, particularly young Americans have gotten this sense of entitlement. Um, are you seeing the same thing? Do you feel like they feel like their mere existence of being an American, just they feel owed this money now? Yeah, well, let me play the old fogey card and and put this in perspective. Uh, I guess uh, something I perhaps should have done at the outset in this discussion. I think a lot of uh, a lot of forecasting is clearly an art. And and almost all your questions, guys, have been. Uh, this isn't exactly a softball interview. Uh, you, all your questions have been uh, have been asking me to look into my crystal ball and forecast the future in the short term, long term. Uh, and so this is this is a tough ordeal for me. But the, but then uh, I have to confess that uh, that any forecaster uh, is probably since it's an art, not a science, mm -hmm. and, and since the art comes from one's own subjective experience, then it's very key to point out that I am 76 years old and that I've seen a lot of this and that I went through a period of, this is what I came of age in the, uh, if you do the math, I came of age in the 1960s uh, and I've been there, done that. And, uh, and when I was, uh, you know, in my teens and 20s, I had a similar attitude. The new left, of which I was a part, had a similar attitude uh, about uh, about free money, about uh, about the food is. You know, there was no sense of of how things are produced. Uh, the same kind of myopia that uh, that young people often have about uh, about the way the world works. And uh, so I've seen that. I mean, my point is that, in putting it in perspective, that that I guess I have the advantage uh, for uh, being an old fogey that uh, that I can tell you that uh, you might think this is something new, and I can tell you no, it's not new at all, and therefore I don't find it very daunting. On the other hand, of course, uh, since there always are new things, uh, some of your other questions about will the UBI come in and will this that happen and that happen, uh, those are more difficult for me because I'm maybe stuck too much in the past. Uh, but uh, so that perhaps is my weakness as a forecaster. But anyway, my I put that in perspective in terms of the answer to your question uh, in this case, because when you're talking to me, to me about the attitude 
that basically the economy consists of printing money. That it's not a, it's not an economy where you produce things. It's a it's an economy of money. Uh, then uh, that kind of uh, perspective, that myth, that fable, that dangerous myth, uh, is something that uh, I I've seen before, and I think that people eventually outgrow it. But uh, you know, that's once again, I guess, just a hope. But I'm not too daunted by uh, by that particular point. Now, Gene, one thing I wanted to ask you about is this is something that, I mean, if you go back the last 10, 12 years, it's pretty much only libertarians that are talking about the dangers of our monetary policy and printing money. And it's, I mean, we're a small fringe group among American political factions. But one thing I've noticed this year is I've been trying to listen to a lot of different podcasts and talk to different people that aren't of our same political persuasion and it seems like the number of people that are paying attention to the the money printing and all of the the goofiness going on at the Federal Reserve is growing exponentially right now. I mean, Tim Pool is a guy who, you know, he voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016. He kind of, you know, took a right turn and he supported Trump this year. And I've never heard him once talk about monetary policy until recently. And he's talking about how, oh, did you guys hear like 40% of all US dollars ever created were created this year and it's it's madness yeah. and then they're devaluing the dollar and we got to get into Bitcoin. And it seems like right now it's a golden opportunity for not just libertarians, but more specifically Austrians to get our message out there and say, hey, here's what we've been talking about the last decade or so. And, and here's where things are going. I mean, just from a political strategy standpoint, do you think that this is the moment for Austrian business cycle theory and Austrian economics in general to really grow in popularity? Oh, okay. There's the first question that isn't really a forecast, but it's kind of which I'm relieved to hear. You're not asking me to forecast. You're just asking me what what do I advocate at this point? Although there's a little bit of a forecasting implication in your question. You 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 said that it's only libertarians have been pointing out about the debt. Well, I, I guess if you want, that's true only if you want to say the Heritage Foundation is libertarian. Uh, uh, you know, lots of cons people who call themselves conservatives are still. I mean, I don't know, not not politicians, but uh, but uh, but definitely people in think tanks, uh, and maybe that's just a cloistered world. But certainly uh, the. There are people at the Heritage Foundation. I mention that in particular because it certainly would never call itself a, a libertarian think tank. American Enterprise Institute, um, certainly. I mean, the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Um, they they wouldn't call themselves libertarian. So it's a somewhat broader uh, a group of people who've been complaining about the debt. And I, of course, I welcome their perspective. I don't think you have to be. It, it isn't. By the way, it isn't specifically libertarian to talk about uh, the dangers of the debt. The Congressional Budget Office, I come to think of it, I, I forgot that part. Congressional Budget Office is a is a, a nonpartisan mainstream organization that, uh, that uh, has been warning about the debt for years. And most of the articles that I have written about uh, the debt have been keyed off Congressional Budget Office numbers. I like to cite them because they are nonpartisan. They published a 2010 paper, paper in 2010, talking about uh, the dangers of a fiscal crisis given where the debt is going. So uh, I, I, uh, I, I don't mean to negate your point in particular, only because I, w I want to emphasize that while, of course, I want Austrians to, to seize any opportunity they can, and I'm going to get to your 
to, to the cutting edge of your point your question in a second. But my point is that it's great to have allies. It's great to have an, another group of people. It's not a completely uh, a lost cause. There are people who agree with us who also see the dangers. And uh, and so uh, uh, we don't we don't you know we, we want all the allies we can get, all fellow travelers we can get. We may strongly disagree about foreign policy with many of these conservatives, but but we can still form an alliance over uh, the risks the risks of the debt. And but but I guess uh, I guess the next part of my answer to your question would be that you know I actually think that the only uniquely libertarian statement to make about this is not so much uh, a matter of Austrian business cycle theory, because if you're talking about the narrow dangers uh, of the uh, of the debt, simply that that if the debt is now uh, exceed the, the publicly held debt now exceeds uh, the GDP you know, the, uh, uh, in nominal terms, it's now over 20 trillion, and it's and it's going to grow much faster than GDP over the next 10 years, given all of the all of the basic dynamics of of uh, mainly of elder care entitlement. In other words, a forecast going 10 years out is usually a rather difficult one to make. You'd think that's the hardest forecast to make, but it's not so difficult in this case because we're talking about the normal trajectory. Of, of of what's called mandatory spending on the part of the federal government that's completely crowding the, uh, uh, the 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 budget and that if the debt grows then all you have to do is talk about an interest rate that goes up to like four percent which is historically fairly low and the the deficit gets uh, the the budget gets crowded out with with of financing that debt. And then the need to finance that debt means that the government is going to start printing money like there's no tomorrow. Really, nothing that I've said so far is completely foreign to people who don't count themselves Austrians. It, it's a little bit little bit touchy for people who say they're strict Keynesians. But in fact, the Congressional Budget Office has a kind of has a Keynesian tilt, and they have been warning about it. So, uh, so I guess I want to point out to you that uh, that it's not necessarily an opportunity to teach about Austrian business cycle theory. It, it's really just an opportunity to point out that while the, that while the government, the federal government, has a lot of power, ultimately money printing uh, is is just going to bring uh, something like what happened in the Weimar Republic in in the, in the 1920s. Uh, now maybe that's going far, too far back in history for most people when inflation went out of control. But that that the the, the a guy named Peter Peters Peter Peterson who was Treasury Secretary. Uh, and has a group, I forget the name of it. Uh, warnings have come from all kinds of sources. So, and I like, I prefer this kind of argument, and it's mostly a congressional budget office argument, because one would think that it doesn't, it's not rocket science. It doesn't require a, a little bit of, 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 of the difficulty that people have in understanding boom and bust Austrian business cycle theory, which is far more contentious. Um, and, but then, uh, so, uh, it is an opportunity, but it's an opportunity because, of course, this is something that libertarians could see right away. Uh, and so I completely agree with you. Let's push it. But I don't necessarily see that uh, that it's an opportunity to teach Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, that I, I don't know 
uh, I, I believe that uh, that we will see. I mean, I, I believe, by the way, the best opportunity to teach Austin business cycle theory should be and remains and maybe uh, will remain uh, at this point uh, the the housing bubble of of 0809. That was so classically uh, misallocation in the housing sector, so classically a bubble and collapse brought about in the housing sector. Uh, and I would one would think that if if we could teach Austin business cycle theory. That would be where it should be taught. And to some degree, I think maybe we missed that opportunity, although uh, I take every opportunity I can to teach it using that as an example. Uh, uh, but then uh, getting to another part of what I want to emphasize in terms of your question, uh, the real uh, unique objection uh, that libertarians should have to all this money printing and to modern monetary theory should have nothing specifically to do with economics, but everything to do with uh, the extent to which the government is answerable to us. Uh, and that, that I mentioned, I alluded to that earlier. It's that uh, if we have a government that can finance itself uh, can finance half its budget. I mean, given the numbers you, you threw out earlier, half its budget through money printing. And if we believe those at the MMT, uh, the money modern monetary theorists, that that's fine and dandy, uh, then what are we really doing in political terms? We're basically saying to the government, if you want to fight your wars, if you want to finance the welfare warfare state, you're not answerable to us by having to raise taxes. You're not answerable to us by even having to borrow from us. You can just ignore us altogether. You can go your merry way and print money. Uh, and that's a real danger uh, to to the Constitution, to the idea of the Declaration of Independence, which one hopes that that you just don't you don't have to be a libertarian to believe in it. That that governments are instituted among men to protect our rights, you know, deriving their just uh, their just uh, powers from the people. So they then then we tilt everything in the direction of government power and against any way in which you can be answerable to the people. And that I guess there's an Austrian point to be raised there in the sense that, uh, that that the whole history of money, uh, of government taking over the money supply, was, of course, based upon the tyranny of kings. The kings wanted to fight their wars. They, they had to finance those wars. They needed to finance those wars through taxes and borrowing. But then they resorted to a third way, a far more convenient way. They took the people's money. Uh, they took the people's money and they printed money in order to finance their wars. Then they no longer had to finance those wars through taxes and borrowing. I think they, you know that's Dick Cheney style. You know, deficits don't matter. Dick Cheney being a, a former vice president of the United States. Deficits don't matter. We can just print. And so that that and of course the, the the whole trajectory then of creating a central bank, a Federal Reserve, uh, uh, codifying the way and institutionalizing the control of the money supply on the part of the government is something you even liberals should object to because it gives the government unusual power. They don't have to raise money in order to from the people in order to get done what they want to get done. And so that's a real danger to the republic in a libertarian sense and hopefully in a classical liberal sense as well. And so that, I think, is the point we should make when we argue with those modern monetary theorists or any of those others. Rand Paul, as you know, was pretty eloquent about that fairly recently when he talked about uh, the bill. And he basically echoed 
my point. And so uh, I guess wrapping up my answer to your point, yes, I do believe that it's an opportunity for libertarians and for Austrians to talk about the politics of money in a way more than to talk about the economics of money to the extent of, of, of these deficits. To the extent that we talk about the economics, it's not classical libertarian theory. It's really, it's a, it's a more conventional kind of approach about the dangers of printing money that non-Austrians can also uh, affirm. And so I think that's a good thing as well. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to, I guess, emphasize is I, I mean, at the institutional level, I know it's a well understood topic and talked about, but what I'm noticing is more just your average American, you know, your, your friends who aren't very political are starting yeah. to take notice of this, but you made, you drove the point home that it is very well understood for people that are in, you know, the finance uh, scene. Um, and there's there's one other thing to pivot just a little bit, non-forecast question. Um, I've noticed this working in the plumbing wholesale industry um, in sales. I, I noticed that every week or every other week we get uh, an, an, a report put out of price increases and or decreases for uh, coming from our vendors. And lately it's been all increases. And I remember on the last show that you were on, we were talking about kind of how inflation enters the system and, you know, the money has to go somewhere unless somebody's like sitting on it, hoarding it, and it's going to go to pushing up some sort of price. And mainly we're seeing it push up like all these asset prices and, mm -hmm. uh, and all these financial instruments. But one thing I've noticed is the price of copper, the price of even PVC plastic, aluminum, steel, water heaters, furnaces, all of these things are going up. We get reports, you know, 5% this week, 10% in two weeks. It's, it's just kind of steadily climbing. Yeah, yeah. And to my surprise, we still have all of this new residential, uh, these houses going up. I mean, they haven't stopped building, which is crazy when you look at the cost of lumber. I mean, I wonder what they're going to have to sell those houses for to be profitable. And is this where you start seeing it enter the system? Like it starts with kind of commodities and the commercial level. And then at what point do you think it could enter more consumer good markets? Or I, I'm not saying when you think it'll happen, but how does that happen? Well, uh, you know, you ask a very, uh, actually a very difficult question and I've been, I've been wrestling with it. Uh, the uh, certainly, um, as you know, uh, the uh, perhaps you know uh, a number of uh, my fellow Austrians, uh, you know, ten years ago uh, were predicting an increase in you know conventionally measured price inflation, uh, measured by the consumer price index, for example, or the GDP deflator. As you indicate, we we do get asset inflation. Uh, uh, we do get asset inflation uh, in stocks. In particular, in bonds, I mean, the bond market is inflated in the sense that's a huge bubble. We get that, uh, and I can explain clearly. It's 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 something people have difficulty understanding sometimes when we talk about a bond bubble. There is a bond bubble for sure. The interest rate is very low. Interest rates low, meaning bond prices are too high. Uh, and uh, but I think that bubble is probably going to last. Uh, then we have a housing bubble. Uh, the uh, th those assets go up. Uh, but uh, when you talk about the uh, putting a radioactive isotope, so to speak, into the body of the economy and seeing how it traces, you definitely, uh, we have difficulty doing that. We don't, we don't really have access to, to great data. We have, we, we, we're still with the blind men, uh, you know, groping the elephant, uh, you know, the blind men groping the elephant story, as you may recall, one blind man said it's a snake. The other said, because, you know, because they were just seeing parts of the elephant, the economy being the elephant in this case. So we don't, uh, it, it's a difficult question to answer. Certainly 
certainly what you've said is true up to a point. I, I uh, what what you've outlined. Um, you know, commodity. You're talking about raw commodity prices. They they go up and they go down. Uh, they and so I, I I don't know that that part of it. Copper prices. Uh, those inputs that you speak of are necessarily uh, a harbinger of real uh, of, of general price inflation to come. It's it's a it's a it's a cyclical thing. Uh, of course, I will point out to you that clearly, of course, as you know, uh, uh, perhaps the most key commodity of all, the crude oil, is uh, is still uh, what about fifty dollars a barrel, still pretty low by, by at least the standards of the last uh, ten years, and uh, so uh, that's not too much of a threat. Uh, the, the 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 key reason why 10 years ago, I didn't think that the money printing then was going to cause uh, price inflation to uh, to accelerate uh, was uh, the labor markets. That the, the most important price of all is uh, is the price of labor? Uh, you know, you might say, of course, maybe unequal and uh, uh, rival is the price of money, uh, but uh, the interest rate. But when you talk about conventionally measured price inflation, uh, the uh, the price of labor is crucial. And when you start, at least in terms of American inflationary history that I'm aware aware of. Uh, in the modern time, when you when you start with an unemployment rate that's near double digits, as was true ten years ago, then you have slack in the labor markets, and you're unlikely to spark a that kind of reaction, a, a price inflation. And so that's why I didn't believe it was going to happen ten years ago. Then another factor that I believe is operating in terms of price inflation is uh, is the disinflationary effects of of cheap labor abroad. I believe that that started with the fall with the, with the end of the Cold War. Um, that that brought in a new era of price inflation, uh, of price deflation. That that when a war ends, when you look at when you look at uh, the period through the 19th century, when a, whenever a war ends, yeah, you have declining prices. When wars heat up, you have rising prices. Uh, that was true through the 19th centuries. And so the Cold War ended. The Cold War ended and um, and and you and you didn't have falling prices, but you had disinflation, and and the disinflation uh, uh, was, I think, uh, uh, turbocharged by the fact that so much of the world, in particular in China, opened up uh, parts of Russia, Russia as well, uh, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Southeast Asia. It became uh, it, it, we 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 suddenly had a world in which uh, the uh, uh, hundreds of, of millions of of cheap laborers were available. Uh, it was sparked by the by the by the end of the Cold War. And so, uh, so the way I like to put it is that is that if you have an, uh, what what kind of inflation would you have without money printing? Uh, I would have say no. You wouldn't have had inflation. You would have had a four percent per year decline in prices because the because the war ended because suddenly you had enormous access to cheap labor uh, and uh, and that and that and that 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 placed an, a, an enormous dampener on the extent to which the price of labor could increase and so if you had a baseline of a, of a negative 4% in inflation then then if you actually see 2% inflation that's really a 6% inflation rate that 
if you follow my math, you have a negative 4%, then you're looking at positive 2%, then really the money printing is bringing about that 2%. And so I believe that that's uh, now, if you now if you apply those principles having to do with uh, the availability of cheap labor abroad and the uh, and the high unemployment rate today, I believe that we probably will not have uh, an acceleration in conventional price inflation uh, over the next ten years. Uh, I also believe that about ten years from now, it's very likely that the disinflationary effects of all that cheap labor abroad will mostly have been played out. There I see a potential problem. Uh, now, I guess uh, perhaps to, to round out my answer completely about inflation, price inflation, uh, the historic double-digit price inflation that started in the uh, 1970s began from a 3% unemployment rate. That's how it built on itself. And so what I'm trying to do then is build, is base myself on that kind and uh, that example to see, well, how did it start? How did it get ignited? And then how did it start to perpetuate itself? Well, eventually, of course, we did have 7% unemployment, but by then it was, uh, it, 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 the wage price spiral uh, was already in place and could only be stopped by you know, 22% uh, interest rate imposed by Paul Volcker in the early 80s, which broke the back of the inflation. Uh, but then, uh, what also happened was that in the 70s, there was cheap labor abroad, but the Cold War was still raging. There wasn't access to the hundreds of millions of cheap laborers abroad. Now, that that could be a problem. Maybe the Cold War is heating up with China at this point. But I mean, in broad brushstrokes, I'm trying to point out that I'm, I've not been surprised that the price inflation has not happened. And of course, that's part of the economic debate we have with, with those who think that the government can print money like there's no tomorrow. You t talk to some of these people. What? What? Are they, what? what I'll, I'll play the the devil's advocate, other side of the of the of the of the uh, argument. Uh, number one, uh, you're worried about price inflation because the government is printing money. Well, uh, uh, we haven't had any price inflation. We've had some asset inflation, yes, but no price inflation. You're worried about high interest rates uh, that that are going to absolutely devastate the federal budget, so, the, so they're going to have to print even more money. Well. Uh, we've got a 2% interest rate on the 20, 30-year bond. So what's to worry? Well, I am worried. I do think that those things are going to change, but I think they'll change slowly. And then to revert to the point I made earlier, the real complaint right now is that the totalitarian tilt of government uh, uh, which is that? Uh, which is that? When you have a government that's that's that that's not answerable to us in the in the sense that it's got to tax us or borrow from us in order to finance its operations, when it's basically the mafioso down the block that could, that just prints its own money and is impervious to us. Now, hopefully, we can point out to everyone that that's not what the founding fathers envisioned for this country when they wrote the Constitution and wrote the Declaration of Independence. Because I keep wanting to to say sound like a mainstream person when I make my arguments. But uh, I hope I've answered your, your question to the extent that I can about inflation entering the system. Yes, it has to some degree in the way that you trace it. But again, I would I, I guess I, I would fall back on playing the labor market card and saying that that's key and that, that that's the reason why I have not been 
surprise. The labor market card in particular about cheap labor abroad, uh, about the basic fact of the matter being that goods prices have basically been flat for years. Those goods are sold at Walmart. Uh, they've been benefiting uh, the lower half of the population. And those are goods that are made by cheap labor in China, to speak in broad brushstrokes. And I, I believe that that probably will continue. There's a lot more cheap labor available. Many more people who want those jobs and, and, will, and who will take those jobs for far, far less than the American minimum wage. Fair enough. Well, yeah. Gene, I won't have you uh, answer any more hard questions or well, forecasting. Guys, guys uh, sorry. I have that. I've not been pleading for mercy. Make the questions tougher. I can take it. No. You can't. No. You want, I, really you want, I know. I know. Look, you want to know, is there a God? Is there a, is there a heaven? <laughs> and, uh, and what's it like? You know, then you know, you, that gets back to the old joke. Well, you wouldn't want to know. First of all, she's colored. You know, that's the joke about God <laughs> we used to tell. <laughs> no, make, take it wherever you want, guys. Yeah. No, um, actually, I was going to end it on a very softball question. That's an insult. Now I'm insulting my. You're going to give me a softball <laughs> question because you think, well, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. something only you can answer, Gene. Oh, um, right. I saw your. Uh, you sent an yeah. email that you're ready to host your first live Soho forum oh, yeah. once again. So, um, can you expand a little bit about uh, where that's being held and um, what it's going to partake and what the resolution is? I do want to talk about that, and thank you for the opportunity uh, you're offering me to do so. Uh, but, 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 but matter of fact, I, I guess I, I want to uh, also say, uh, in relation to many of your questions, that I buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin every month, and I buy $1,000 worth of gold every month. And I've been doing that since August, and I'm going to continue to do that. And that, that $1,000 worth is uh, is conventional dollar cost averaging, a very conservative approach. Uh, it does mean, as you probably know, that I've done quite well with Bitcoin uh, and uh, and that uh, I'm buying less Bitcoin because I buy the same thousand dollars with less of a quantity of, uh, of that because it's gone so far up in price. And uh, I am also buying gold because I'm not sure what which uh, which which of those two are the best hedge against the future. And so uh, so therefore, I'm putting my money where my mouth is, so to speak, in seeing, in perceiving problems certainly 10 years from now, and then potentially uh, problems even before then, because my crystal ball is cloudy. And, uh, and I do think that, uh, that, those, uh, that those are, I, I do own also a lot of stocks and bonds. Um, most of my portfolios in stocks and bonds. I'm a retired person living on that money. And so, uh, uh, and, and so in, in that sense, I'm conventional, but I do believe that, uh, that it's, an important, it's important to hedge against the dangers of a very unstable dollar uh, uh, 10 years from now and possibly sooner. So uh, again, uh, I wanna emphasize that I, 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 I do see dangers down the road and I've acted accordingly. To get to your softball question, uh, uh, that we uh, we've been uh, we have a twofold mission at the Soul Forum, uh, and the twofold mission uh, consists first of, uh, of of sponsoring debates of interest to libertarians, but then second and equally important, having a party, uh, having a place where where libertarians can come, and uh, of course you don't have to uh, take a ten point quiz. 
to show you're a libertarian when you come in the door. Who knows? We, we may be infiltrated by a lot of you know FBI agents and whoever else. So everybody is there for the party, including libertarians. The party, of course, is a place where we served wine and my wife served food and where people can get to know each other. Uh, and uh, and so that's just as important as uh, as, as our debates. And uh, and so then our last. Uh, uh, debate in a in at the subculture theater, which is where we've held most of our debates, which does have a bar. And again, also I would add that this, that that it's a nice place for people to come because you can talk about the debate at the bar. The debaters afterwards, the debaters often mingle. They do book signing. It's uh, even for shy people who get an anxiety attack when they see people talking at a bar and they don't know what they're going to say. You could talk about the debate, so it's an icebreaker. So that's what I liked to see. Uh, I'm a very social person, and that's why I've been upset, in particular, that uh, as of uh, last April, we've had to do Zoom debates. We do, we've done uh, we've done 10 Zoom debates in, in nine months, and we're doing another one this uh, uh, this coming Wednesday. I don't know if, if we'll be, uh, will this be out before uh, Wednesday the 13th? Yes. Uh, yeah. So Wednesday the 13th, go on uh, Soul Forum uh, dot org the soulform.org and and it's free to register by zoom for our debate on industrial policy on the on on the argument that there should be a more proactive role that government plays in the economy uh with uh orin cass versus scott lincecum scott lincecum from the cato institute i think that'll be an interesting debate january 13th on wednesday and if you go on soulform.org you can register and then you can ask questions and engage in so in uh, Oxford style voting but getting to the key question you've asked uh, we have been uh, eager to uh, host a debate in a physical space as you and I know New York City is not available for that the subculture theater by the way is still uh, still making some money. It's still, it hasn't gone out of business. We're happy to hear that. So that if we ha we do go back, we will be going back to the subculture theater at 45 Bleecker Street. Uh, and uh, that's, of course, where we attract our huge audience. But uh, because we had no prospects of going back to New York City, it, it, New York City physical space, we've looked to the South in Florida and we're going to have a debate on in February with a uh, uh, with John Mackey of Whole Foods versus Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, they will be debating John Mackey's uh, new book on conscious leadership. Uh, and this will be in a physical space in what's called the villages. I'm I'm new to this. Maybe you know you you guys know your Florida better than I. I've not been down there. Uh, we uh, we we can we 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 will have a capacity of of up to 500 seats that we can sell even with social distancing. As you know, Florida is one of the most one of the most open states uh, of of the country. And of course, you and I should point out that uh, if it's most open states, it must have the highest number of deaths and hospitalizations, particularly since it has a disproportionate number of old people, but it's about in the middle. You know, you can't, you can't explain, if you look at all our, I'm digressing again, but I think it's important to point out, if you look at all the 50 states and you ask which, which, ones, which ones have severe lockdowns, which ones have, are pretty open, and then try to connect that with their record with respect to deaths and hospitalizations, you find no 
well, just about no connection at all. Florida is about in the middle, and yet it's a very open state. So uh, that's where we're going to go. And of course, it makes sense for, for New Yorkers to sort of go south for the winter, just with the birds. And so uh, and so this is going to be at the villages. Uh, and uh, the best way I can locate it is to say that it's 45 minutes from Disney World. And uh, we and uh, you fly down to Orlando. I've already got my tickets sold. And we're going to be at the Brownwood Hotel. Uh, at, they, they're the ones who are giving us the hall down there. And that will be Feb uh, Thursday, February 18th. And so, again, if you go on soulform.org, uh, thesoulform.org, I should say, that's, a, that's our uh, website, thesoulform.org, then you can... Um, um, uh, buy a ticket to the event. It's only $18 general admission, $12 for seniors, $9 for students. If you want to pretend to be a student, we're not going to be able to, I confess, we don't have the uh, the manpower to make sure you bring your student card. Uh, you can just pay whatever you want, but uh, you know, 18 bucks is not too much uh, money. But of course it will cost you if you're not in, in Florida to fly down there. Although the, the flights are amazingly cheap, as you might imagine. Uh, the hotel rooms are amazingly cheap, as you might imagine. It's time to then come down for, it's a Thursday on February 18th. So that means if you stay through the weekend, you can take the kids to Disney World or go to Disney World yourself. Uh, if you're still a kid, uh, then, uh, you know, it, it's a not to be missed uh, occasion. Uh, and in fact, uh, we're going to have a Zoom debate in March, but I'm going to be uh, uh, in uh, back down there in April. I forget the, that's our April 18th. Um, also at the Villages, uh, debating Ben Burgess on socialism. It's become a very popular topic. Uh, I'm pleased by the fact that my previous debate on socialism, which was the last November, November of 2019, has had over 2 million YouTube views. So I hope that a lot of socialists have, have, uh, have downloaded it. One would think that of those 2 million, maybe a few socialists were converted. I'm going to have yet another, this is going to be my third debate on socialism, in this case, with a socialist philosopher named Ben Burgess, and that is, that's going to be in April. But uh, but February is the best time to go south for the winter. Mike and Nick, I take it you've already bought your tickets on the plane. <laughs> you're going to be down there, and you're going to be in the audience. Uh, so I'll see you guys in uh, right on February 18th. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, any other time I would, Gene. I just have four little kids that give me no freedom in my life right now. So maybe yeah, in a year. Mike, or two. Mike, Mike, you know, come on. What kind of excuse is that not to take them to Disney World? How old are they? <laughs> well, yeah, and you're really leaving me with no excuses, Mike. So I don't, I I don't really. <laughs> seven, three, and then twins that are uh, 18 months. So it's okay, perfect age for Disney World. They're, they're, obviously, they're, they're very precocious kids, Mike, as you probably noticed. <laughs> Nick, you have kids? No, none yet. Oh, you have married anyone? Huh? Yeah, no, married? I'm, I'm married. I, I got married about two months ago. So oh, it, it should be, you know. Um, well, you and the I wife. Say, I would say in the next year or two, you know, that's that's probably when we're aiming. You and the wife should take advantage of the cheap fares, the cheap whatever. She's actually a flight attendant, so we get pretty good uh, tickets. So, I mean, honestly, I didn't know about this, but you're bringing it up now, and I'm going to have to well, consider it. Nick, now if you don't go, you're just insulting the man. What? Watch insulting them. You're what, insulting me? No, you're not insulting me. Look, I'm sure you've, you've focused on a lot of other things other than the news about the solar form. But again, it's it's uh, you've got plenty of time to book the flight, uh, uh, Nick, and uh, and plenty of time to think in terms of you know going. Uh, Ohio is pretty. You're in Ohio, right? Illinois. Illinois. 
sorry, Illinois, forgive me. You know, it's a, I'm, oh, another part of flyover country, Illinois. Yeah, yeah. Midwest at Whole Foods. Oh, I'm sorry, you guys, are you guys, you're not in Chicago though, are you? No, we're about, about an hour and a half. I'm about an hour and a half west. I'm farther than Nick. Oh, I see. But. All right. Well, it, it gets very cold up there, Nick, and you probably want a, you know, oh, yeah. a little respite from the winter time and come down to Florida. Uh, Orlando Airport. It's a major hub. I, I was amazed at how many flights that were available from New York City. Uh, and uh, for what that's worth, surprised. But uh, I, I don't usually go to Florida for the winter. This time I'm going to do so twice. So I look forward to it. Thanks so, again, guys. I guess that's it. Unless you've got uh, some really tough question you want to answer, ask me. No, no, that's about <laughs> it. But uh, I just want to comment that. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, would you say the revolution or sorry, the resolution was at the John McKee debate? The, the revolution. Okay. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> A bit, it's a bit of it's a bit of a. You, you, I thought you were going to ask me about the revolution. I'm not, I'm not really about when is the revolution going to happen? It should be nonviolent, nonviolent revolution Please. is what I want. But uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's actually a bit of a mouthful. It's it's that uh, I, mean, I don't have it in front of me, but it it basically comes from uh, Mackey's book that uh, a, a a clearly uh, I think I can do it. Uh, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but uh, I think that. It, it since it's Mackey's book, it should be easy enough to grasp what he stands for. A, a, a clearly defined purpose, consciously embodied by the leadership, should be an essential part of every business organization while also enhancing pro, uh, shareholder value. In other words, he believes that, uh, that again, every business should have a core purpose and that, and that uh, maximizing profits is one of their purposes, but you can maximize profits, long-term profits, shareholder value, but still you need a core purpose. The core purpose of Whole Foods is to, is to sell healthy food to people and that and that the and that this will affirm the idealism of business and uh, so that's his basic argument and that was the best we could do with respect to summarizing the core part of the book uh, and uh, Yaron Brook uh, who is an Ayn Randian who believes in the virtue of selfishness I actually debated Yaron's a good guy I debated him on the virtue of selfishness I beat him by a few points uh, at the Stowe Forum uh, I, I don't think selfishness is a virtue but Yaron is still a good guy and uh, and and he, I think, is going to do a deep dive into into Mackey's book and try to talk about the limitations of an argument that all businesses should have idealistic purposes and that that should be a priority rather than maximizing shareholder value. The potential contradictions there. So that's that's I think going to be the basis of their of their dispute. And you come there, you can do Oxford style voting. And then also what I miss, I should say as well, with this, there will be a reception afterwards and Mackie is going to do book signing and sales. Uh, I actually, I think he's probably going to give away his book because he's that kind of guy. I think Yaron is going to do book signing and sales and probably charge for his book. And so <laughs> there will be another social occasion as well, which I've, uh, which I look forward to. Uh, and uh, so that's uh, going to be the key part of the evening. And the other part of it that I miss is that the free for all of questions being asked from the floor that I've, we've been asking questions through um, having the Q and a part of the debate 
via Zoom has been only through the chat room. So I summarize the questions and I ask them because it would just be too chaotic for people to come, uh, you know, to suddenly come on screen and ask the question via Zoom. Too much of a of, of a technical glitch in that. But this time, of course, people can come up to the mic and ask their questions. And I, I always say, of course, to questioners, please phrase your question as a question. Don't deliver a speech. Half the time they don't do that. But at least there's a nice interaction with the audience. And uh, and and so I look forward to that as well. Yeah, cool. yeah John Mackey's a very interesting guy. I heard yeah. him on Joe Rogan a couple months ago, and I'm uh -huh. really, really looking forward to hearing this. Uh -huh. Well, really cool, Gene. I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, I should have this posted probably uh, today or tomorrow, so I'll shoot you a link once I have it up. Thanks a lot, guys, and uh, always a pleasure talking to you. Bye -bye. Thank you, Gene. Take Bye -bye. care. Bye-bye.